Hey everyone, welcome into another edition of the Woj Pod. My guest here today in studio in Bristol, former Charlotte Hornets coach Steve Clifford. Stay with us. Here with Steve Clifford in the ESPN studios in Bristol back in Cliff's old recruiting stomping grounds from his New England Division Two and Division One days. Cliff, man, welcome in. Thank you. Reminds me of Tremaine Bird, St. Thomas More, Stanford, Connecticut. Uh, <laughs> guy that we signed at BU, I think our third year there. <laughs> All the car trips you make in recruiting, like St. Anselm's, Boston University, Siena, you still have a pretty good recall on guys you didn't get that you drove around 20 years ago, 25 years ago and recruited? Oh, absolutely. Plus, it was different back then because the guys that you chased the hardest used to go to almost every game. You know, the, the, there weren't many limits. You were out uh, not in August and you got a month in the spring. But if a guy played 20 high school games, the guys you wanted, you probably saw 14, 15. I'll tell you, it just made me think of it. <laughs> Jerry Quinn at St. Thomas More, his office phone, 860-859-1900. You know, there was no cell phone back then, and you actually knew guys' phone numbers. And, uh, no, that stuff comes to you because your life becomes, you know, basketball and recruiting, and the phone number was everything. It is funny how uh, you think back, like, pre-cell phone, when you had to catch somebody in their office. To me, people talk about, like, how the Internet has changed, reporting what I do, or Twitter. Nothing changed my job more than a cell phone. I remember you had to sit there. If you didn't get a guy at 4.30 or 5 before he left his office, you couldn't get him until the next day at 9 a.m. And think of how that changed recruiting, right? You you had to get somebody in their office. Oh, well, I mean, there were a couple of things. First of all, to get the home phone number was a huge deal. And then to establish a type of relationship where you felt comfortable calling them at home. The second part of it is in the schools I worked at, uh, you know, St. Anselm, Boston University, Siena, Adelphi, schools like that, you know, up and down the East Coast, we were driving. So, you know, your day was built around making phone calls. You know, you can't have wasted days back in those days where, you know, maybe you're seeing three kids and you're not sure you like any of them, but there's no contact with the guys you know you want to get. Yeah. So you had to know where every payphone was <laughs> and every Dunkin' Donuts. Because the reality is if you went to a game in Jersey – and you were going to get back to Manchester, New Hampshire that night, which you were because the budget uh, necessitated that you weren't going to stay in many hotel rooms, is the bottom line is the game is at 7, you know, you're out of there at 9, you probably had 45 minutes to make phone calls. So you weren't on the road until, you know, you try to get a couple recruits wherever. You know, a lot of nights, as you know, it was outside the gym, the pay phone. Yep. You watch one guy play and you're trying to hit three other kids. So, um you know, you lived it. I mean, it was, uh, uh, you know, when you're a college assistant, it, you're recruiting much more than you're coaching. So from those days in Division Two to Division One, 13 years as an assistant, and then the past five years, Cliff, in Charlotte as the head coach, you were let go about two weeks ago. Mitch Kupchak took over as the new GM there. Was your sense when there was a change in a new GM comes in, maybe wants to bring his own staff in, his own people, were you surprised they let you go? No. And you know what? I think being in this league 18 years, you're not surprised at anything. Uh, The reality is we didn't make the playoffs two years in a row. 
this year I was disappointed in the results that we had. I think we had a better team than we played. And, uh, you know, coaching in this league is its not just winning, it's winning in the playoffs. So, uh, you know, I think for all of us is you get to choose the approach that you have every day and about your job, about the way you live. My viewpoint on five years in Charlotte was this. It was a great experience. I'm a much better coach than I was when I got there. I learned a ton. I met some great people. Uh, I worked, uh, loved my staff, loved the people in basketball ops, uh, and I had a chance to work with some terrific players. So, you know, I totally understand. I think that's the way the NBA works. Um, and I'm going to be glass half full and say, you know what, it was a, it, it was a great experience. So uh, I'm ready for something new, looking forward to the next challenge, and uh, that's the way I feel about it. This season in Charlotte, combination of injuries to your team, and then there's you know the window where you left to deal with your own health issues, came back and you know coached a team the last month and a half, and, and down the stretch, did it just feel like choppy? Maybe choppy is not the right word, but it was just the continuity of the group and you. It just a lot was difficult to overcome, especially in, a, in an Eastern Conference that was much improved no question and um but but i will say this though is the thing that we didn't do and it it started early in the year um i don't think that uh you know my illness didn't help uh in terms of what you're saying continuity it's hard for players to go from you know a transition like that but the reality is we didn't play with consistency all year. You know, it started early. We never developed a way to play, which is what the NBA is all about. you got to develop a way to play where you're maximizing your talent, everybody buys into the way you play, and it allows you to play against the best teams every night, whether it's home or road. That's the thing for the first four years I was proud of. You know, we had two years where – I feel comfortable in saying we did a lot better than anybody thought we would. We had two years we didn't make the playoffs. And frankly, because uh, I'm the only guy that watches every film in the summer, our staff's best year coaching in Charlotte might have been year two. Mm-hmm. We won 33 games. When you watch it, it just wasn't a team. We were so limited offensively. Uh, but we got better and better and better. Even year four, you know, the big thing there, that was really health-related um, where we really had to scramble the last six weeks of the year. This year was the first time we didn't have, to me, the mentality to keep getting better uh, for whatever reason. And if you're not going to make progress in this league, unless you have great talent, uh, which obviously we didn't, it's going to be hard. And even when the team wasn't winning a lot, you were still an elite defensive team. This was the first year. Offensively, you guys were very good this year. Probably as, as good or maybe even better than you hoped. But this was the one year defensively where it hadn't been the standard you had set there. Right? Yeah, which which to me, the way the team was put together, the reason I was optimistic early in the year is I thought not only would we have our best defensive team, but I thought we could, we could formulate uh, – and develop a style of play where we could make the playoffs and be hard to play against. You know, have a defensive mentality uh, which would allow us to play well in the playoffs. And that, to me, that that that's the biggest disappointment. Um, our offense 
like you said, I think we ended up 12th, 13th. Again, which for our team was, you know, I'd hoped for 10 to 12, but I thought we could be a top five defensive team, and we weren't anywhere close to that. So as much as anything, that's what led to the lack of consistency. Dwight Howard never seemed he impacted winning or impacted the team. He had been a dominant defensive player. You coached him in Orlando. You coached him in L.A. as an assistant with Mike D'Antoni. Did you expect more from him on the defensive end that that would anchor your group, make the team better? Well, it's never one thing. You know, I think that the thing that he did well, which is a huge part of defense, is his defensive rebounding was terrific. Uh, Set a franchise record for rebounding. Uh, He rebounded the ball well every night. Uh, I think the challenge, you know, and, and I think this is for all guys at that position, and, and I think it's very difficult for them to understand. This league is in a place where, ideally, in the perfect world, you want to be able to play five out and be good defensively. Now, there's only a number of guys who are going to allow you to do that at the center position. And Bede obviously stands out. He's a terrific defender. He can guard both on the perimeter and obviously closer to the basket. And he can shoot threes and he can post the ball. Uh, Turner comes to mind. But most of the other guys, you can downsize and play them some at the five, but you're not going to be able to do both. Then the next part to me, it's the guys who have dynamic pick-and-roll games where they're rolling and they put pressure on the defense with the role. Gobert, uh, DeAndre Jordan is good at that. And then they allow you to be great defensively. I think what happens sometimes, or I think what's happening now with a lot of guys is they're looking around as centers and saying, I have to expand my game. Uh, and no matter what, guys are going to come into this league with strengths. That's how they got here. Their strengths almost always are going to remain their strengths. The guys that get older, where they, in my opinion, make mistake is you can expand your game, but you've got to play to your strengths. My point is, is that like with a lot of these guys, they're worried about expanding their game offensively. What they need to do is expand their game defensively. So a lot of these guys that are rim protectors, uh, they have to be able to defend more on the perimeter, and that's going to help their team more. The group you had in Charlotte, and I think it starts with Kemba Walker, who played for you from day one, became an all-star under you. And I think it always felt like you had the ultimate buy-in from Kemba. He was always, you guys were always connected about the vision for the group, the way his game expanded. To have guys like that in places, again, he became an all-star. You guys became a playoff team off of a group that you inherited that was deep in the lottery. What? When you leave a place, what's your affinity for a guy like Kemba who just did everything you asked him to do? Well, I would say this is I have, you know, through the years, there were, as I look back on this thing, there were so many experiences I've had uh, that I'll treasure. Uh, You know, the first one with the Knicks, you know, my first Nick training camp, I was the advanced scout. And I remember thinking, I wonder if I'll like this. And after three days in Charleston, you know, we used to do training camp there, and that was the first year without Patrick. So it was uh, Larry Johnson, Alan Houston, Chris Child, Spree, 
Marcus Camby, Kurt Thomas, um, Glenn Rice. And I remember after two days saying, this is incredible, like how these guys work, how professional they are. All the way through, having a chance to be around Tracy and Yao, Battier, those guys, our time in Orlando with Stan, you know, we made the finals, the experience with the Lakers, Kobe Nash, you know, Powell. I've had so many great chances to learn from, uh, you know, terrific NBA players. But coaching him uh, has been one of the things that I'll treasure the most because from day one, for him, it's about winning and getting better, being willing to be accountable to the group, being accountable to winning. And that's where it all starts. You know, when your best player will work, when your best player will say, it was my fault, um, you know, it makes everything easier. And it started right from the beginning. I mean, I got there, and, um, you know, the, the first thing he did was I coached summer league. I'd never been a head coach before. I wanted to set a tone. We had just drafted Cody. MKG played summer league. Biz played summer league. Jeffrey Taylor played summer league. So we had four guys in summer league. And Kemba came and he said, I'm going to practice with summer league. I want to see how we're going to practice. And, you know, usually veteran guys, it's not uncommon. Veteran guys will come back. They want away. But, you know, summer league normally we did it the same way. You do more drills and stuff in the morning, come back in the afternoon or early evening and scrimmage. So I told him, well, you want to come and watch, see what we're doing, and then scrimmage at night. He said, oh, no, no, Steve, I'm going to do it all. I'm going to do the drills. I'm going to do it all. And he did. And just watching him then, you know, you could see he was trying to figure it out. How's this going to work out? Uh, And like most NBA players, how's it going to be good for me? Mm -hmm. But you could also see he had a toughness, a love of the game. And again, the fact that winning for him is always above everything else. And it's what made this, uh, you know, such a fun five years. I mean, when your best players have that accountability uh, to their teammates, to everybody else, and they want to win, it makes everything else fun. Today's episode of the Woj Pod is brought to you by Mattress Firm. Everyone knows how important stretching is before an event. So does Mattress Firm. Except it's your dollar. Your budget stretches further at Mattress Firm, so shop at America's Neighborhood Mattress Store. It's a true home run. They're the head coaches when it comes to mattress expertise. But know this, they are more than mattress experts. They have a game plan that helps you transform your mattress into a bed. From adjustable bases and sheets to headboards and bedroom decor, they have you literally and figuratively covered up like your favorite cornerback. Go to mattressfirm.com to see what deals are happening now. They even offer you a 120-night sleep trial to ensure perfection and a 120-night low-price guarantee so you know you paid the perfect price. Talk about a one-two punch. So score big with a perfect bed. Head to mattressfirm.com and use code PODCAST10 for 10% off. The code is only valid through May 2nd, so don't miss out. Get the play-by-play on how you can monumentally improve your sleep today, tonight, and tomorrow, only at Mattress Firm. From the time you got into the NBA, you talked about that Nick group, which was a very tough-minded, largely a veteran group who did a lot of winning in New York, to, you know, the guys you coach now, or you've coached here, and then when you look around the league, is it harder to find, are there as many guys committed to just winning, like lots of guys are committed to their game, and put time in on their game, 
maybe not always thinking in the greater context of what does it mean for the group. Has that changed in the NBA, or there's just as many of them? You just got to get them on your team. I would say this, and get, because this is what coaches talk a lot about. I would say that, and I, I get this back to the grassroots basketball in our country, which is a real problem in my opinion, is the things that are harder to find now in today's younger players are uh, fundamentally sound, prepared to play a good team game, understand what it takes to win with playing with other people, uh, and then the work that goes into that. You know, I think that they're out there. I mean, you're seeing it, some of it now. Look at these young kids in the playoffs. Simmons is unselfish. Mm-hmm. He's a great competitor. Uh, Mitchell is yeah. unselfish. He's a great competitor, as is Embiid. Yep. And they're not just – those guys aren't just bringing intangibles. They're bringing talent. The guys are out there. But I do think the more you talk to scouts, it's becoming harder to find. The toughness, the, uh, you know, I mean, go back. You know, I was there Larry Johnson's last year in New York. And uh, I remember over the All-Star break, you know, he was older. He wasn't an All-Star at that point. And he went up there every day with Tibbs and worked out. And, you know, he used to do closeouts to warm up. Closeouts. <laughs> now, you, you ask guys now in our league to do closeouts in practice and it's like we're going four hours today no I mean that part of it has changed and uh, I think there are a lot more challenges in being a coach in our league now guys have more guys have individual guys working them out Um, that's a challenge it can be helpful too but it's a challenge in many ways they have uh, more people their people their posse you know whoever um and there's just more aspects of coaching, I think, from a leadership standpoint um, than there were back then. You know, I, I do think that it's it's tougher now. Um, but those guys are still out there. And I, I would also say this. Bob Weiss, you know, was an assistant for my first four years in Charlotte and very bright man with, I think, a great perspective on basketball. And we would sit around and talk about, you know, a lot of it, the challenges of the younger guys, the guys coming out of college, the one-year guys who are there at their schools at such a short time. They play for great coaches who don't have time to impact them. So, you know, they're not as fundamentally sound as they used to. But he always used to make a great point. We can say whatever we want. It's easy to sit around and say, because of AAU, they're not as fundamentally sound. They play better now. They play better. He always used to say, you can't watch the NBA game today versus 15 years ago. You could say the teams aren't as good because there's more teams. I mean, you're not getting teams where you have Bird, McHale, DJ, Ainge, okay? Uh, you know, Magic, Kareem, Worthy, da 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 There's more teams. But the game is played at an incredibly high level. So that's part of the challenge, too, is instead of, you know, talking about the issues, figuring out how to get them to play well. Do all those voices, whether you mention guys, people around them, family members, workout guys, what they're reading on Twitter or what someone is saying about them, how they're reacting, does it force you to have to make sure you talk to them every day, that you spend time with them, that they're always hearing your voice and it doesn't get drowned out by all the rest? You can't go... 
a day or maybe you can't even go a day without addressing things directly with a guy or building a relationship. I'd say this. The most important relationship with every player, if you want to have a chance to max out your team, it's got to be with the head coach. Just the way it is. I mean, and if you're not willing to put time into, sometimes now it's 17 guys with two-way guys where you know them, they know your expectations. doesn't mean they're going to like it, uh, but you have to have a feel for who they're listening to, where they're they're getting their information from, and they have to know what you expect. You know, I learned a ton, you know, the the Van Gundys, you know, Jeff Hanstan, but one of the greatest things Jeff ever told me was he had a leadership statement. I got the Adelphi job on the island. I'd known Jeff for years. He was the head coach of the Knicks. I called him up and said, have you got a half hour? And I met him at a golf outing. And uh, Let me guess, it turned into like five hours. No, because right? he had to go. Oh, okay. I actually had a half hour. <laughs> and I asked him some defensive things, and I said, give me two things about coaching. I'd never been a head coach. I've been a division, well, I've been a high school coach. I've been a Division One assistant for years. I get this job. So he said two things. Number one, only address your team when you have something to say. Don't blow the whistle every day. Have them run to half court and give them a speech about they have to work hard. Everybody knows that. You know that when you're like in bitty basketball. And it's true. Because when you do have something important to say, you want them to listen. When you talk to them every day about life, about playing hard, about working hard, the impact is gone when you need it the most. And that's how he coaches, and it became a big part of, of why I've done a head coach. And the second thing was he showed me his leadership statement. And I changed through five things that he talked about, but his first one is the one that I copied. And it's what I've tried to do uh, as a head coach in Charlotte is if you ask the guys in Charlotte about Steve Clifford, I would want them to say he wants me to do well. And I don't think there's anything more important than that is he wants me to do well. There have been guys that have played there that haven't agreed with how I think they should play. That's part of coaching. They maybe haven't liked the way I've coached them. That's part of coaching. But I can honestly say that with every one of them, None of them will ever leave and say, boy, he didn't spend enough time with me. He didn't know my game. He didn't put a lot into coaching me. You know, to me is if they have workout guys, you know, I've gotten to the point where I talk to the workout guys. You know, you have to have an idea of what information they're getting. And it's your only chance. Again, we're not going to be able to, as coaches, you're not going to be able to control who's talking to these guys. It is getting so there are more and more people. What you can do, however, is make sure that all of them know where you're coming from. Uh, because a workout guy, now, first of all, some of them are knowledgeable. They're not taking responsibility. And the other part, frankly, is the tough thing is this. They're not coaches. They're not coaches. They, coaching is not taking a guy and working on a shooting, ball handling, and post moves. That's skill development. Coaching is then taking that guy and saying, you're best at 14 minutes a night, even though you're working three hours a day. You're just not good enough for more than that. That's coaching. Okay, you're going to screen for Kemba. That's coaching. Okay, and that and that's where a lot of the conflict comes in. Uh, but connecting with every player, you know, your assistants can help. They're not making the decisions. I mean, at the end of the day, you got to be the head coach. You have to have the right relationship with each guy. There used to sort of be this perception, and maybe it was different in a different NBA where 
and maybe it was true in all of coaching, the head coach was more of this stately figure that was above it, and the assistants were there to have the relationships to. And I don't know if that changed over time, but I don't. That won't work anymore, right? It can't be my assistants, a good cop, bad cop thing, right? That it's got to be the head coach engaged with these guys. Or well, coaching's yeah. changed. I mean, I'm 56. When I was 22, I was a varsity coach in a little town in Maine, and back then. At 22, I mean, I remember the parents meeting and saying, uh, so whatever questions you have tonight, ask them tonight because after tonight I'm not talking to anybody till the season's over. Now, if you did that today, you'd get fired. I remember walking down the halls in this school, and if you saw a kid, sometimes you say hi to him, sometimes you didn't. You were the coach. That's the way it was. I mean, the coach was the coach, and... It's not like that anymore. And, to, and by the way, that's all fair, too. I mean, uh, I think that's the way society is. And, uh, you know, it's another challenge. But the leadership aspect of coaching has changed, you know, dramatically. Because, again, it's all about the buy-in, you know. And they're only going to buy into you, let's face it, it's human nature, if they feel like it's good for them. Cliff, you were on Golik and Wingo this morning, and... Trey mentioned, I think Trey's a Greenwich Fairfield guy. And I had three Girl Scout cookies, mint, which were <laughs> great. There's always food around this yes, place. There is. There's, yeah, always, no. there's always free food around this place. That is that is true. Um, I had forgotten you had worked for Mitch Bonagero uh, for a year at Fairfield. I remember Mitch when I was a kid growing up in Connecticut. The UConn job opened, and Mitch, I think, had gone to the NCAAs for the first time at Fairfield. And I remember a story in the Harvard Current like the UConn jobs between Mitch Bonagero and Jim Calhoun at Northeastern. And you think of how different history can be. Like Mitch was coming off a hot year. Calhoun had been very good for a long time at Northeastern and, and obviously got UConn. And, but all the different guys you've worked for, are you surprised sometimes even when you're your, your own head coach that there are things, the obvious ones of working for Jeff and Stan, you worked with Mike D'Antoni, for a year, but then you work for college guys. Brett Brown's father, Bob Brown, who was a really good New England Great co- coach. coach, right? When you're a head coach, do you find yourself something that maybe you didn't even think you paid attention to, or you didn't think resonated with you? You, you come in moments where you go, "Hey, that's how that guy handled it," or that does that happen to you as a head coach all the time? Yeah, I mean, I think we're all product of our experiences. I mean, I worked for you know Bob Brown, Brett Brown's dad, who's an absolute terrific coach one of the smartest basketball people i've ever met i still call him by by the way one of the great trivia questions in all the nba what two nba head coaches are from maine right that'll never be duplicated they'll never be think about that well right now there's only one (laughs) yeah no you're right um no i mean i work for a guy named keith dixon who's been uh the head coach at saint anselm for oh man since i was like 25 who's a guy that I still talk to. One of the guys that I I call when I need like advice on certain things, a guy named Dick Whitmore, who was the head coach at Colby College in Waterville, Maine, for many, many years. As smart a basketball man as I've ever met. But you, you go through things that you see. I mean, I do drills, especially on days when we're going to have shorter practices. We have a little series of build-up. They're all Bob Brown's drills to just get them moving, passing, cutting. They're a little bit high schoolish, And it's funny, the guys like them. And it's in, out, they get loose, they get a bunch of shots up. So you never know. Um, there is a difference 
in basketball, you know, between what wins in high school, what wins in college, what wins in the NBA. But at the end of the day, basketball is basketball. It's about playing smart. It's about having your team ready to play, then being fundamentally sound and trying to get them to play together. So the Van Gundys obviously have had an incredible impact on me. And it's not just the head coaches, Woj, but I look back at the guys I was assistants with. You know, Tom Thibodeau is a mentor to me. Brendan Malone is a mentor to me. You know, I had a guy on my step this year, Eddie Jordan, who I worked with with the Lakers, who had a big impact on me. Bernie Bickerstaff is someone that I learned a great deal from. So, um, you know, I think it's the guys that you work for because obviously you see them in a leadership-type role, but it's also the people that you work with. Today's episode of the Woj Pod is also brought to you by Books. Raising you wasn't all Skittles and unicorns, but you turned out pretty awesome thanks to mom. Look, Mother's Day is coming. It's her big day. Mom's Day is Books Day. Books, that's short for bouquets, and these flowers are booking awesome. Moms don't want online sweatshop flowers that wilt in just two days. Your mom deserves flowers from the Books. Books flowers are as unique and special as your mom is. They're freshly cut from Books Farms and delivered straight to your mom, so they last weeks, not days. Books even has farms located on the side of a volcano that produce flowers so gorgeous, mom will post pics of them and brag about you. And because Books cut out the middlemen, you'll get amazingly fresh flowers at an amazing price. Show mom how much you care. Send her artisan-designed flowers from the Books. Order today and get an extra 15% off when you enter Woj, W-O-J. That's B-O-U-Q-S dot com. And remember to enter Woj, W-O-J, to save an extra 15%. Books dot com. What are the hardest decisions in the NBA, maybe in this NBA, that, that a coach has to make anymore? Are the hardest decisions now different from the hardest decisions you made when you worked for Jeff in New York, is it the same or because the league's changed, the game's changed, something's harder about it now that, that you have to deal with? I would say, well, I, I would say it's always going to be consistent. It's, it's uh, you know, as the players would say, it's time and touches. You know, you're talking about the best of the best. And uh, I think that the biggest difference in going from college to the NBA is simply this. You coach in college. I don't care what level it is. So maybe the guy played for a great high school coach, maybe he played junior college, had a great junior college coach, and then you get him. You know, you may be the third really good coach he's played for, but it's the first at that level. In the NBA, you know, you're going to have guys. Dwight Howard had played for Brian Hill, terrific coach. Stan Van Gundy, great, great coach. Mike Dan Coney, great coach. Kevin McHale, terrific coach. Da-da, Mike Budenholzer, okay? When you say, hey, this is how we're going to, defend the high pick and roll he's heard five or six things and you have to be able to show it sell it and get him to buy into that they're not walking into the gym and saying well steve's a smart coach again they're going to look and try to figure out if they think it's good for them and good for the team and that's the biggest challenge in the nba you can't walk in and say this is the way we're going to do it they're not 18 19 year old kids who aren't that sophisticated basketball-wise. They've seen a lot. You've got to be ready. When you call a timeout and they're scoring on a certain action, you better be ready to help them clean that up 
or you're going to lose them. And I think that's the fun of chal- uh, the fun of coaching in our league, and it's the biggest challenge. Guys who played for you and assistants will tell you that you're not going to do a lot of yelling and screaming when you're trying to make a point to a player or, you're, or he's disagreeing. You're just going to take them in the room. You're going to have it on film. You're going to have it on tape, and you're going to sit and show them over and over. It, I guess it's as simple as teaching is, like, don't tell me, show me. And that's how you, when a guy's not agreeing, okay, let's go look at it and see, here's your way. Here's the way we're trying to do it. Is, is that how you've always tried uh, to it's, impact guys? It's my comfort level. Yeah. Number one is, I think if you want to develop the right playing habits, you do it in practice, shoot around, film, all that. They have to learn how to get better in every situation you put them in. In order to do that, in my opinion, is you have to have the right concentration and intensity. So if you came to one of our practices, uh, similar to the places I worked as an assistant, I think it is, it's highly organized and you try to do everything right. That's how you build the right habits. You're not going to practice a long, long time in the NBA and expect them to have the right energy for the games. The energy is for the 82 games. Practice is to develop, develop the right habits. With that being said, you don't have time in practice to be arguing with players. That's where the use of film to me is everything. So you bring them in, you show them, this is what I see. Let's talk about it. You're not always going to agree. But again, you've got to be able to come to a common place. You know, where they are playing, and this is the whole, this is the whole challenge to me. Players have to understand, and it can change for them from team to team. They have to be able to play in a way that they're playing well and the team functions well. There are many players in our league that can put up numbers and their teams are not going to win, you know, because of the nature of how they play. Moving the ball, understanding of how to play, blowing coverages, blowing sets. And to me, the use of film in the one-on-one meetings that way is everything. Um, I think it leads to a comfort level with players one-on-one. Uh, and I think it's the best way to communicate. Does a head coach in the NBA now have to fight for practice time or make the case to management in a lot of places that it's a league of rest now? It's a league of sitting players out. There's lots, I think, there's probably less practice. If you, if you just counted up all the minutes of all the teams in the league practicing, it's not going up. It's probably going down. Because organizationally, there are places now who just see it. This is how we're going to do it. And there's coaches like you and others who say, man, we need practice time on the court. Is that a fight? Is that a thing you've got to deal with now as a head coach? Well, I haven't had to deal with that much simply because of this. You know, I just worked for an owner for five years who thought that's bizarre. You know, I, I've had three or four meals with Michael and Patrick Ewing and I where we get into this discussion. And you're talking about two first ballot Hall of Famers, two of the greatest players of all time, whose idea was, you know, you train in the summer to play hard 82 times. Okay. And we did practice a lot harder 18 years ago. We practiced harder five years ago. My, my only point is, though, again, you can play Joe Tough head coach and say, you know, guys don't want to work anymore. They don't. But I'm going to go back to Bob Weiss. They still play well. You know, they still play well. And there are there are coaches in this league who don't practice a lot and their teams play well. So to me, it's the 
It's the place where we're in. It's not going to change. You have to be careful to me of how much time you practice because you're not going to get free agents. You can't be that guy that everybody is saying they practice too much. He's going to take years off your career. However, on the flip side, the best players want to be coached. The best players will work towards winning. Uh, and that's where I think you have to put a, so much thought and energy into how you organize training camp. That's when the work has to be. How you organize shoot-arounds, how much rest they get. Uh, you know, what, what's interesting about the Van Gundys, because everybody talks about that, you know, my background on the high end of the work part. They both gave a ton of days off, a ton of days off. Players used to always say, you know, every, I thought this was going to be different. Now, when you practice, though, I think what players have, winning players understand is, if we're going to take a lot of days off, which I believe in, but when we practice, if it's an hour and 15 minutes, it's also not too much to expect total concentration and intensity. Nothing crazy, because again, you have to have the right energy level for 82 games, you know? And I had a talk with JJ this year when they were, when JJ, they were yeah, JJ and Brett and I were sitting around talking, and JJ is, you know, he's just, he's so unique in terms of, you know, just, he's the best. You know, and, a great, won- and a great podcast. He's also. a great podcast, yeah. Yeah, yeah, which is far down on the list of his strengths, <laughs> by the way. But I mean, he just, he, nobody has maximized their abilities more than him, but it's also for the right reasons. He's about the team, he's about working. And we were talking about all this, and he, and he said to me, he's like, Cliff, you got to understand, you have your body... I think the way he explained it was like a bottle of energy, okay? And every time you step in this gym, you lose a little bit of that energy over the year. And at the end of the day, coaches do have to understand that when the energy's gone, it's gone. And if you want to be playing your best at the end of the year, how you pace your team is everything. And and you can't run from that. I think what we have to do is spend as much time as we can making sure that every drill is something that we're getting a lot out of every day is something, you know, and getting the players to understand also, you know, when we're in here, we have to maximize our time. You said something a couple minutes ago. Um, it seems obvious. I had never thought of it this way about players making decisions based on practice time because there's a perception of he's going to wear me out or he's going to shorten my career or I'm going to be more susceptible to injury, whatever the issue, or I don't want to practice. Is that something you started to hear more in your last few years when either guys were asking you about it or you start, they're asking your players about that? Yeah, that, yeah. that's the part you get more from the assistants. Okay. You know, are we going to, you know, I'll give an example. We went to China and uh, we had played, we went with the Clippers and we had played maybe say the second night we get there. And that's a long flight, obviously. And we played in one city. And then we flew to the second city, and, uh, you know, it's training camp, so you got to get stuff done. And uh, so we got the, you know, it was one of those 2.30 in the morning deals. So we had like a 2 o'clock time. You get like an hour and a half. And I knew it was going to be, it's a brutal practice situation. So I told him, this is what we're going to do. Just give me 45 minutes. I'm going to put, we're going to stretch. I'm going to put 45 minutes on the clock, totally organizational, but full speed, build the right habits, pass the ball, pivot, stuff like that. Now, now, I mean, come on now, right? I mean, that's not hard, right? So one of the new guys, we got actually a very good player. Uh, He's one of my favorite guys now. 
he said to Steve Hetzel, one of my assistants, is he serious? And this guy had come from a place where very good coach, and they played. So they got done. And he said, are we going to practice like that all year? Hetzel said, we went 45 minutes with no contact. He said, where I've been, that would have been the hardest practice I've had in like five years. And my point is twofold. One, if you ask that same guy that now, he would laugh at that story mm-hmm. because I believe practicing better has made him a better player. But number two, he played for two terrific coaches in the place before where they won, they won in the playoffs, and they played well. And to me, again, you know, you have to learn from that. Again, the easiest thing to do is pound your chest and say, we can't play well unless we practice more. And yet other people are practicing less and their teams play well. So, again, I think that's the challenge. Maximize your time and sell it to the players. Cliff, you mentioned China. And Jeff Van Gundy and I have had this conversation. We've talked a lot about Yao and the guys who coached Yao Ming, and you coached him in Houston, if Yao had stayed healthy, how would we be talking about him in context of NBA pro basketball history? Well, he would have kept getting better and better because, you know, he had such a good work ethic. And the offensive part of the game came very easily to him. You know, he could read the defense. He had great hand-eye coordination and terrific touch. And the defensive part, he was so team-oriented and so wanted to help his teammates do well that he was getting better and better and better. You know, for a man his size, he had good mobility, but obviously against some of the real quick, quick guys, it was a challenge. But he had become so much better technically, you know, which a lot of guys fight. He didn't. He embraced getting better. Um And then what happened was, in my opinion, is, you know, but he had to work at things to get better. Uh, You know, there are guys in this league that can, you know, practice less than most of the other guys and be really good. He wasn't that guy. And so I think that what happened is, you know, once he started to have the, the leg issues and then they wanted him to work less, lift less, um, you know, it stunted his progress, and uh, uh, he was not. I mean, just you know, I mean, and everything again. It started with his talent, but his approach, uh, you know, was was giving him the best chance to reach his potential. Yeah, I, I remember I sat down with him All Star Weekend a couple of years ago, and talked about, and I was surprised how open he was about it. That he said, like he sort of he apologized. He was on the podcast, and he he apologized to Houston fans and said, "Listen." I know that what I did with the Chinese national team, the physical toll that took on me, I know that shortened my NBA career. And I was just surprised he could even say that. And somebody said to me after, he's the only one who could say that. No one else there maybe been able to talk as freely. But I just thought the thing about him, there was such a sense of duty and obligation. I always still think one of the greatest moments I've ever seen in sports was at the Olympics in Beijing opening night when he came out and literally should not have been playing, was running up and down that court on one leg, you know, against all the great USA players, and and that he was determined he was going to play in those Olympics, he was going to carry the flag in the stadium, and he was going to be on the court. And he made a, right at the start of the game, he made like an 18-19 footer. And I, I don't know that I've ever heard a louder, but, and then he literally was dragging that leg down the court, and you just said like, 
man, he's different. He's different. Yeah. I will tell you this is, uh, you know, just a memory. I've been to China three times, once with the Rockets, with him, once with the Magic, and then once with the Hornets. And uh, when we went with uh, the Hornets, I mean with the uh, Rockets, it was us and Sacramento, the great Sacramento team, uh, Chris Weber, Vlade, mm-hmm. the Bibi Stojakovic, Turk, uh, Bobby Jackson. And uh, the it was hard to get into the gyms to practice. I mean, it was like Elvis. I mean, he was just, it was incredible. And that was, I think, for a lot of our guys, the first time you got a sense of, like you said, the responsibility that he had within his own country, uh, you know, to represent China in the NBA. And uh, he's just a remarkable guy. Yeah. And players, there is such an appreciation for him. And I remember that night they all, Kobe and Chris Paul, they all felt it and acknowledged it. And, and the thing they all know is Yao made all of them so much more money. He made them even greater global icons that his impact on the game is um, – I don't know if people appreciate it enough. Not just what he did, but but he opened. Think of what it means for guys to have endorsed shoe deals over there. They almost most great players go over to China in the off season and and promote other stuff. And it's all because largely because of him. Yeah, no, special guy, just a special guy. I, I will tell you, this, this is this is a side of Jeff that you, you'd appreciate. The first year with Yao, uh, Yao's English wasn't good yet, so. Uh, you made a Colin Pine. Colin Pine yeah. was his uh, interpreter. And what we used to do <laughs> was because Jeff had heard that the year before, Colin would just whisper to Yao. And, you know, I guess the players told Jeff it's distracting. So, you know, the coach would be talking and then Colin would be whispering. And Yao also is, doesn't have great hearing, so he couldn't always hear. So what we did, what they did was they set it up so that – Colin would be in the next room. Jeff would be mic'd. It would go to Colin. Yeah, would have earphones in. Okay, so anyway, that's the first part. The second part is, you know, Jeff, we're so thorough. I was in charge of, we called and got, and Colin was in charge of this, every personnel report, okay, that you give the players. Yao couldn't read English the first year. So I would get it in like two or three days in advance, get it to Colin. We got the program where he would then change it into right. Chinese symbols. Yeah. Okay. And then after the shoot around, Homer Road, if it was on the road, Colin and I would go to Yao's room and we'd go over all the players he could guard with the Chinese symbols, right? So drives left, spins, you know, all that <laughs> stuff. So anyway, we go to, uh, we go to Atlanta. It's five and seven nights and the guys are, you know, tired, right? And, uh, so Jeff comes in for the pregame, and they're sitting there, and he just puts up a sign because, you know, Yao was so big, and he got great at it. But early, he resisted the temptation to catch the ball deep in the paint, where he was literally unstoppable. He was happy posting it. Jeff's whole thing was paint catch, you're unstoppable, versus post up, you're pretty good. So it's like 20 games in. So Jeff just comes in, and they're all yeah, – so this is – Steve Francis, Katina Mobley, Kelvin Cato, Mo Taylor. We, I mean, we had – they were a fun group, but they were – it was a bunch of characters. <laughs> so Jeff comes in and doesn't say a word and just holds up a sign in Chinese symbols and only Yao laughs because none of the rest of it. <laughs> and what he had said was, 
paint cast. <laughs> he said, everybody good? Let's go. <laughs> Nobody knew. Yeah. yeah. So, so, you know, that was typical Jeff. You know? Oh, man. Cliff, great stuff, man. There's some more free food around the building here. Well, let's go. We'll go find it. But uh, thanks for taking time out. Thank you. All right. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Woj Pod. A big thank you to my guest today, former Charlotte Hornets coach Steve Clifford. Remember, you can subscribe and listen to new and archived episodes of this pod wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your shows. A big thank you today to our sponsors, Books and Mattress Firm. Be sure to support them the way they support us here at the Woj Pod. We'll catch you next time.